Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. We're about to have another engaging conversation with one of Washington and Lee's expert faculty. Please join me as we continue our journey of lifelong learning. Today's guest is Megan Hess, Associate Professor of Accounting. Megan is a 1997 graduate of WNL who has been teaching in the Williams School of Commerce, Economics, and Politics since 2011. She teaches courses in accounting, ethics, and corporate sustainability. Megan spent 12 years in industry before beginning doctoral studies, including six years as a financial fraud investigator at Deloitte. Megan's research lands squarely at the intersection of ethics and accounting, and her course, Anatomy of a Fraud, is a highly sought-after spring-term class offered in the Williams School. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Glad to be here. So this is the first podcast that we have done in person in a very long time, and it feels good. It feels good to to be with you and have this conversation instead yeah. of, you know, having to look at you through a screen. So uh, thanks for inviting me to your office today. Yes. I appreciate it. Um, to begin our conversation today, I'd like to flash back just a moment to when you were a politics major at WNL. You took only one accounting class during your undergraduate years, and and I know that it didn't exactly light a fire. So how is it that as an MBA student at Texas A&M, you fell in love with accounting? I'm curious as to your change of heart. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, uh, I definitely came to accounting the long way around. <laughs> Um, when I graduated from from WNL, I did not know yet what I wanted to be when I grew up, which I think a lot of our students um, can relate to. Sure. And so I I took the default option. I went into banking. Did not find a good fit. Only lasted a year in banking, and then I went on to work in consulting for four years, primarily IT consulting, and really enjoyed the work. But um, after a few years of doing that, was was ready for um, new new pastures. Um, wanted to move back to Texas for a while. Um, wanted to get back into school. I'd missed school, and so as you mentioned, went to Texas A and M to get my master's in business administration and enrolled there in fall of two thousand and one. And um, that that fall was when nine eleven happened which definitely brought um, a lot of um, newfound appreciation for our economic systems and how interconnected they were and how important it was for us to rebound, not just spiritually, but financially um, from that crisis. And then very quickly thereafter, a second crisis unfolded, which was the Enron accounting scandal. And keep in mind that um, at Texas A&M, my accounting professor at the time had also taught the lead audit engagement partner at Enron, David Duncan. So we were getting secondhand, almost firsthand information from the Arthur Anderson team as they were communicating with our professor about how the um, implosion was happening and, and what the investigation was like. and. That really lit a fire in me to um, better understand accounting and in particular to think about how important the role it is of accountants and auditors in particular in preserving the integrity of our financial markets. So the this massive accounting fraud on the, the heels of a 
you know, a, a major economic recession um, created a, a path forward for me. And I, I like to say that, you know, at that point, um, focusing on corporate corruption and finding ways to fight fraud became my, my life's work and passion. So do you think it was hearing it firsthand from that professor that did it? Or was it just the the experience of living through it? It, it was all of it. Yeah. And it was also really um, taking accounting classes in a way that I began to appreciate what it was all about. I, I think a lot of us make a a mistake in thinking that accounting is something that's only for people who are good at math mm-hmm. and that accounting is all about spreadsheets and, you know, green shades and, and you know, counting beans and, and that kind of thing. And and while there is some accounting and there is some math in accounting, it, it's really very basic. It's addition, subtraction, and occasionally some division. You've been doing that <laughs> since second grade. That's not what makes the, the subject so compelling what what a what you learn when you when you study accounting at higher levels is that there's so much judgment and decision making and so many opportunities for people to lead or for people to to fall behind and so um, accounting choices and in particular financial reporting choices are are really consequential and so understanding the decision making process and the team dynamics and the cognitive biases that play into those judgments, that's when it really got exciting and yeah, interesting. For it me. does sound very interesting. So from 2003 to 2009, you were a senior manager at Deloitte, a, a multinational company. Your role there included forensic accounting, corporate investigation, and litigation support for clients responding to allegations of fraud. What was that like? Oh, it was a great job. Great job. And I have to clarify that I did not start as a senior manager. I worked my way up. <laughs> so I, I started like we all do at the staff that's, level. Okay. I should, I, should, I should rephrase that. No, that's okay. I'm very proud that I got that yeah. far with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that work was fascinating. So one of the things that I, I really enjoyed, especially early on, is that no one day was the same. Um, even though I had been working and consulting previously and knew what it was like, the satisfaction of having a project, working on it, completing it, and then moving on to the next thing. When you're working in, in forensics, I mean, the, the pace is accelerated. So it's it's that intensified. And I, I got to work with some really interesting people um, in our teams. It was um, not just accountants, but computer forensic specialists. We occasionally would have people from law enforcement, whether it was you know, local police or FBI or Securities Exchange Commission investigators. So I got an appreciation for how law enforcement works and, and the personality that they bring into the investigation process. And then there were always lots and lots of lawyers involved you know, getting to, to meet some really impressive um, litigators and appreciating the, the combination of disciplines that it takes in order to not just investigate, but ultimately prosecute a fraud was one of the cool parts of the job. Oh, that's interesting. So sometimes you hear of cases taking years and years. Oh, they did. Were you, were you <laughs> able to see any cases from All beginning to end? Well, you know, each case was very unique. Um, I will say that the initial investigation was where things were, were very intense and, and rather short-lived. Cases that went on to be um, 
prosecuted or where the company had to do a complete restatement of those financials, that's where it would, would drag on for, for many years. And I actually can't think of one that I was personally involved in from beginning to end that was like that. Um, you know, the, I don't have statistics on this, but a, a surprisingly large number of cases settle out of court. They don't fully get prosecuted. Most fraudsters don't actually go to jail, sadly. Um, so the number of, of, as you could imagine, like from investigation to victory and the, the criminals behind bars, like those cases are actually pretty rare. Um, it's also pretty rare because um, rarely are these acts being committed by just one single person, one, one bad guy. That's the impression that we have about how fraud happens is that there's some criminal mastermind that's pulling the strings and um, you know, getting away with it. And, and while that does happen on occasion, those cases are pretty rare. It's, it's usually um, a situation where multiple people are complicit in committing a financial crime and they each have what they feel to be good reasons for doing so. The, the rationalization process that people go through to, to justify to themselves how they're going to do this bad thing, and yet it's really not that bad. Um, the idea of a, a necessary evil or being caught between a rock and a hard place, and so making the, the best choice among available options. Uh, that, that kind of rationalization, that's really what the, the main driver of fraud is. So I, I teach my students a lot about um, the psychology of good people making bad choices and how important it is to build corporate cultures that celebrate open discussion of problems and addressing things before you end up in a rock and a hard place kind of situation where it feels like there's no way out. That's a, a great lesson for anyone regardless of yeah. what they're going to go into. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you saying once that uh, a criminal doesn't look like a criminal when no. it comes to fraud. It yeah. could be you know, someone who looks like your next door neighbor or the person you sit next to in church and, yeah. and you know, it's, it starts small and ends up big. That's exactly so. right. So we talk about fraud and um, in, in our, our conversation prior to the podcast, I used the term whistleblower mm -hmm. and you didn't like that term. Why? Oh, yes. Yes. Why don't I Why like the term whistleblower? Like well, first, I should background that with uh, my obsession with whistleblowers. Um, so um, my dissertation um, from, from University of Virginia was all about whistleblowing. And it looked at how uh, social networks affect people's propensity to blow the whistle and explored what alternatives employees use when they don't feel like they could blow the whistle on someone because they're in a, a, a network with them. They're part of their trust circle. So, you know, I've had this long-standing fascination with whistleblowing. I consider myself to be a failed whistleblower. I, I did have a, a, a work-related incident that I chose to deal with myself without going through formal compliance channels. And, and that's probably my biggest ethical failing in my career. So, and what you'll find amongst a lot of academics is that we, we tend to study those things that are most personal. It's not research, it's me-search. So spending, gosh, how many years have I been studying whistleblowers? You know, a decade at least. 
in that field has been really useful in, in me understanding my own challenges with that topic, but also figuring out how everybody could be better empowered to, to be a whistleblower. And the, the first thing that came true to me is that the, the label of whistleblower is one of the primary barriers because a whistleblower for most of us is synonymous with um, a backstabber or a rat yeah, or it, someone it who it has a negative yeah. it it's it's someone who betrays rather than someone who um, is saves and i and i want us to instead think about if you're an employee who through no fault of your own comes upon information about some kind of corporate misdeed that's happening. And hopefully it will never happen to you, but if it does, um, think about yourself as a problem solver instead. And I, I learned through this research how important it is to not try and problem solve alone, but to have a support team, to have other people work through that process with you. Not only does it give you more confidence that you're on the right path and a little bit more cover for the inevitable blowback that bad news always seems to bring with it, but it, it can also help you tackle the problem more effectively. We, we solve problems better as a team rather than as yeah. an individual. Now, of course, that can be ever so more difficult if we're talking about um, you know, someone who's done bad things that's in your line of chain of command or as a direct report or the consequences are, are very severe. Um, fortunately, my personal situation, the consequences were not um, very severe. But if, you know, I'm thinking about like the tobacco whistleblowers, right? I mean, there were lives at stake. Yeah. Um, so um, at any rate, that that's where my hesitancy around the word whistleblower. It's just not a very effective word. And I'm a very pragmatic person. And if we can come up with a better word for what we're up to and a label you, yeah, if you that we can say, yeah, that identity works for me. Yeah. And so I, I think problem solver. Problem. Yeah. I yeah. like that. It has a much more positive connotation. Yeah. And again, it strikes me that these are great life lessons, mm -hmm. just not about accounting. It's great life lessons. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Accounting is living, too. <laughs> <laughs> I often in the class, though, do strive for the, even if you never practice as an accountant a day in your life, this this yeah, is a really good, good life yeah. skill to yeah. have. Yeah. yeah, it is. Good yeah, life that's skills. That's important. So Megan, I'd like to shift gears here a little bit and talk more about your teaching and research. When we met to discuss the podcast, you told me, and I quote, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, so I apologize, <laughs> but you told me, I still feel every day like I'm the luckiest girl in the world. Teaching makes me feel decades younger. And I have to tell you that afternoon, I kept thinking about that yeah. comment. Yeah. So, and and to, to have found a profession that you are so obviously passionate about and energized by it it's a wonderful thing what is it about teaching and WNL students that you find so fulfilling oh yeah yeah so I, I think when we find our passion and it intersects with something that we're good at and then someone's willing to pay us to do that for a living that's that's magic <laughs> yeah, right and, yeah, it and is magic that's why I say I'm I'm so lucky because I I can't, 
I don't know that many people that get to, to find that. Um, it's especially wonderful to be here at Washington and Lee doing it because this is a, a rare place in the fact that we are a liberal arts institution that also values teaching towards the professions like accounting or business or law or journalism. And so I get to bring um, all of the wonderful aspects of appreciating the humanities and engaging in pedagogical approaches that are foundational to being in a liberal arts institution like the Socratic method. And I get to apply those in an accounting class. And, and I don't know of any of my colleagues at other schools that get to do that. I mean, it, it, to, to not have to lecture and not have to give multiple choice exams and not have to stick to a textbook is such a gift, such yeah. a gift. And, and I think there, there's a, um, a lot to say for that freedom in how I teach that is really helping the students learn better as well because they're, they're learning as much from each other as they are from me. We do lots of group discussions and we do lots of applied work in the classroom. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, ta- the case teaching method. We do lots of cases where I let the real world explain the importance of the, the subject and then they just get to practice the whatever the, the technique, the, the application for the lesson for the day. Um, as far as like how it, it also makes me feel younger or so energized, something that I think I didn't appreciate when I was a student here is just how rewarding it is to be in a place where intellectual curiosity is fostered and rewarded and, and thriving. And I tell my students all the time and my advisees as well, you know, make sure that you you don't double and triple major and tie yourself down too much because this place is an intellectual candy store and you want to go take all these fun classes from all these great professors with all these cool titles and do all the things because you'll never get another chance. Yeah. Even if you stay in school and go on to get a graduate degree, it only gets more and more focused and narrow and your options get more and more yeah. limited. Um, so the, the ability to explore is, is so wonderful. And, and we've got so many ways that students can do that here. I mean, there's been a lot um, mentioned recently and our strategic plan supports it that we've moved towards more interdisciplinary mm-hmm. studies where we're not even confined by the, the boundaries of our department or the school that we sit in and can explore topics from multidisciplinary perspectives. And, and I, I teach two different courses that are part of an interdisciplinary program and would love to teach more. Um, oh, the students too. I have to talk about uh, the quality of the students mm. because that is also a gift of this place. We can never forget how important it is that the students that show up for our classes are are really engaged. And we get to take that for granted here because our students are so bright and they're so conscientious and by and large, they're really happy to be here and very respectful of, of the learning opportunities that they're given and they, they really do lean into them. And again, other universities where you've got two or 300 students in a class and everyone's a number and learning means showing up and passing the exam. It's just a completely yeah. different kind of teaching and learning experience. So. I um, I have often reflected about wh- how would I describe 
WNL students to people who've never been here and haven't had the pleasure of interacting with them and knowing just how wonderful they are. And I, I, um, when I was a student here, the, the phrase that was always applied to us, well, you know, they work hard and they play hard. And I think that's still very true. Our students probably work even harder and maybe play even harder <laughs> than ever, uh, you know, maybe not during the pandemic, but now for sure. <laughs> But they also have developed this really wonderful quality where they are so supportive of one each one another here. I mean, how to unpack how that happens here. I think um, being a smaller campus is part of it, having an honor code and really rewarding students for being trusting and showing each other a lot of trust. That's part of it. It may even be the speaking tradition. I don't know what the magic is, but they somehow managed to, even with, with other students that they're not best friends with, they're still incredibly kind and generous towards one another. And and that's a wonderful collegial collaborative environment in which to work. Yeah, and you, you use the word magic and that rings so true. And moving even after graduation mm-hmm. when, you know, the alumni population and helping each other and, you know, somebody knows somebody and you know, that, that just continues. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. It's a it's a support network for life. That it is. Given this industry experience, it's no surprise that you have been teaching a spring term class called Anatomy of a Fraud since you first joined the WNL faculty as an adjunct professor in 2011. I understand that the concept of that class is loosely based on the medical metaphor that corporate fraud is like a disease. Would you explain that to us and tell us a little bit about the class? Yeah, so um, I was invited to develop a spring term course while I was still finishing my doctoral studies at University of Virginia. And the advice that I was given was that the best spring term courses have really clever titles. So whatever you do, it has to have a great title. <laughs> so we quickly figured out that just calling it forensic accounting wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna <laughs> be a, exactly a clever, exciting <laughs> title grabbing. that would, would grab students, especially as a new course. And so I, I don't know that I even came up with Anatomy of a Fraud as the, the working title. I think actually Elizabeth Oliver was the one who suggested that. but. But the metaphor does work. Um, so I, I do believe that uh, fraud is is a disease, a cancer on our markets. It, it you know not only is is stealing value away from investors and other mm-hmm. stakeholders, but it it undermines our trust in financial reporting. And think about how difficult it is to buy stock in companies or buy their bonds or lend them money and help them build and grow and come up with new inventions and new drugs that will save us during a pandemic and all those sorts of things if we we can't believe the information that they're sharing with us. I mean, that that trust yeah. in the information has to be there in order for the markets to, to work effectively. So um, we talk in the class about uh, fraud is a disease and how an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So a large portion of that class is about how to build strong corporate cultures around ethics, how to be an ethical leader, um, and so forth. And then we, But we also talk about diagnosis. So what are some techniques that accountants can use to identify when a company is at risk of a financial fraud? 
and and what are some of those sort of vital signs, if you will? Um, so so the metaphor kind of works. It does. It, it really does. It does. And, and so we, we get to explore all aspects of the diagnosing it. Why does it happen? Um, how to detect it? And then finally, hopefully how to prevent it. Every summer, you have a few summer research scholars who assist you with research projects. Why is student research conducted during the summer so important to you, and and how does it benefit students? Well, for for me, um, the interaction with students outside of the normal classroom, uh, particularly on these research projects, is really rewarding because I, I get to benefit personally from their creativity, which is an area that I think I am, it's not one of my personal strengths, right? I, I get, like I said, I'm a very pragmatic, analytical type A person. And so thinking outside the box is not something that comes very naturally to me. But our, our students, um, both because of, of their own personalities and because they're so new to the research process, so they're sort of their innocence or their naivete, um, allows them to ask really great questions about whatever phenomenon I'm obsessing over at the moment and studying intensely. At the moment, it's not whistleblowing, it's sustainability. <laughs> <laughs> and and their, their questions help me um, take the research in new directions and develop really interesting research projects. So I'll give you an example of, of something that I've been working on in cooperation with Professor Colin Reed. Um, which is the, the development of a database that captures the sustainability uh, reporting activities for a sample of U.S. companies over the last eight years. And what we have been doing in the construction of this database that has been largely driven by student effort to, to do the, the coding necessary to create the database is um, they're reading these sustainability reports and they're coding the kinds of goals that companies are setting for themselves when it comes to sustainability and the progress or the lack thereof that they're making. So for instance, a company might say that they want to decrease their emissions by 20%. And and so for five to 10 years, they're going to keep working towards that goal. And each year they'll give an update. Okay, we've managed to reduce emissions by 1% or another 2%, or here's how we're going to plan to make even more progress in this area in the next year. And our, our theory is that this um, goal setting and performance towards goals is going to help companies make real progress and that we should be factoring in a company's um, disclosure about their goal setting and their progress into our evaluations of their performance and perhaps even into our evaluations of the price for their stock, right? We, we think this is really consequential information that the markets need to embrace. Um, and um, so so my students, as we, we've been working on this project for quite a while, my students have asked some really interesting questions that are also about sustainability disclosure. So in this last fall term, I had a, um, an independent study student. So some of my students work with me during the main term, not just during the summer. And she was a former auditing student going on to work in, in the field of assurance. And she wanted to know, well, what impact is the, the assurance process having on all of this? And I was like, great question. We can study that, right? So we're in the process of actually writing up a paper right now that shows that there is indeed actually a significant positive effect of having external assurance on the ESG ratings that these 
you know, third party evaluators are, are giving to these publicly traded companies. So it turns out external insurance matters not just when it comes to fraud, but also when it comes to um, our evaluations of the sustainability of a company. Love how that one question by the student led yeah. to a whole new oh, yeah. and I have area 10 of research. More, right. That's, I mean it's yeah. it's wonderful. And and I have them well, the other benefit for the student, it is an opportunity to learn about what social science research is all about. They don't usually get much exposure to what professors do when they're not teaching. So they get to see this whole other world where, you know, how do we create new knowledge and how do we study phenomenon? How do we ask interesting research questions and how do we find or collect or create the data that will help us answer those questions? And um, I've had students that were so intrigued by doing the research that they've gone on to go to graduate school themselves and may ultimately become academics. So I think that's really exciting. Um, and I've had others that sort of, wow, I didn't know that this is what you had to do if you wanted to be a professor. <laughs> uh, count me out, right? right. So it, it's kind of a useful screen in yeah. both directions. All about discovering what makes you tick. Exactly, right? exactly. So corporate social responsibility, also known as CSR, is a term that we are hearing more and more in the business world. Since your field in academia covers both accounting and ethics, I, I think our listeners would appreciate a definition of what CSR is exactly and mm -hmm. why it's so important. Mm -hmm. Well, so the this definition of sustainability that I really like uh, comes from the Brundtland Commission of the United Nations, but it, it's talking about um, creating a world where the next generation is going to thrive. So it's mm. it's being not unmindful of the future, as far as I think about it. Okay. And what what's kind of fascinating, because I've been doing research in the area of corporate social responsibility since 2016. And then if you go back to my doctoral studies, I've been studying ethics. Well, really, I've been studying ethics since I was a politics major at <laughs> WNL, right? Long time. The vocabulary is shifting. So if we go way back, we used to talk about businesses being ethical and doing good things in their community as citizenship. It was it was corporate citizenship and it was largely focused on the charitable contributions and the foundations that wealthy companies and their owners would set up to help share some of that wealth. And there's a long tradition of that no, keep going. Keep going. It's, it's, it's the life of a professor. I know. I was like, I never get phone calls on that phone. There's a long tradition of that. I mean, I'm thinking back to, say, the, the Hershey Corporation in Pennsylvania yeah. and how they founded a, a school for orphans. Yeah. Right? So, so this is a long tradition, uh, especially in America. And uh, you know, somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, we started talking about corporate social responsibility. Um, and we started getting much more um, focused on environmental impacts and pollution and talking about carbon taxes and all these kinds of things. So it went from being largely about citizenship and charity to then being more about social impacts and environmental impacts. And, and so organizations not just being charitable because it was a nice thing to do, but corporations cleaning up their messes because that was the responsible thing to do. 
Well, now, it just in the last two years, we've evolved again, and we're talking about ESG yeah. all the time. Yeah. So now it's all about environmental social governance metrics. So we've taken a turn towards the quant, although the qualitative is still very, very important and will always be there. Um, thinking about um, the kinds of, of programs that companies are running in these areas and really making more fine-grained assessments of, of their impacts on a quantitative basis. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, where we're headed is to having um, standards for making those disclosures very similar to what we have to do for financial reporting. The Securities Exchange Commission announced in 2020 that, that there will be a standard for ESG reporting. We don't know yet what it is and what it's going to look like. But it's it's a major area of corporate compliance that is just um, ballooning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, I could imagine there would be a lot of gray area in there that oh yeah, not always black and white. Which yeah. which which is a great lead in to to my next question for you. You helped one student with a CSR project involving a phenomenon known as greenwashing. Yes. What is greenwashing, and what work have your students done in that realm? Yeah, so so greenwashing is a phrase that has come up, and I don't know if an academic invented it or if it was a journalist. It's a great phrase. <laughs> but what it refers to is corporations making claims about their efforts and their progress with regard to protecting the environment that have no teeth. So they're saying that they're doing good things, but they're not actually making any improvements. So, so rather than whitewashing, which is kind of the old, the old term, we're now calling it greenwashing because they're making claims of, of their good, good citizen behavior in the, with regard to the environment when in reality they're they're not making much progress. Hence the metrics that are needed. Hence those yeah. metrics. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Megan, before we wrap up our conversation today, I'd like to talk about your life outside of the classroom mm -hmm. just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So um, I love being here in your office and I'm I'm sitting here looking around and it's it's so homey, but it also used to be a very special place on campus. Uh -huh. Could you describe exactly where your office is? Exactly where it, my office what it used is. To be? Yeah, so, so for students who graduated, I, I guess, before the mid-aughts, the building that I sit in, which is now known as Whole Camp Hall, used to be called the co-op. And it housed uh, a diner where you could get quick service food and the bookstore where you could buy books, but you could also buy all your life supplies, which was was important. It could all be charged home. So, <laughs> so it was a safe harbor for lots of reasons, but not a particularly beautiful building in any respects. Well, sometime in, in the mid-2000s, we renovated this building to provide more office space for um, professors in the Williams School. And so, it, I mean, it's this gorgeous, of course, red bricked with white column building that still maintains the footprint of the old bookstore and co-op and the same entrances and exits. But on the inside, we've we've got um, a, an art gallery. So the McCarthy Art Gallery is downstairs. So there's, there's different art installations, which I, I think is so important that here we are a business school that has art galleries in all of our, our, our academic uh, buildings. 
Um, and and it's got some great spaces for students to study and to meet and, and so forth. And my office happens to be what used to be the atrium of the bookstore. So the bookstore was it had a two-story atrium and they took the upper level and, and made it a true second story. And there's about, oh, I don't know, six or seven offices on this floor. So so my my office has these this weird quirk that the window is is like a, a Harry Potter <laughs> view to the outside. It's it starts on the floor and goes up about three feet. And when my children were little, it was their favorite place on campus. It's got this oh, this little ledge by. next yes. to it, and they would they would just you know settle down right there and work on puzzles or color or do their Legos or whatever they were into at the moment. All right. I'm going to I'm going to take a picture of that and post it on our episode <laughs> episode it notes. It still has puzzles oh. and all kinds of yeah, fun things. I yeah. That, I think that that may resonate with some yeah. with, with alums from yeah. that period so of time it, when they used to come in here and and buy their little cans of potato chips or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great a great spot. And and I'm I'm noticing this fabulous bulletin board with lots of notes pinned to it. What is that? Yes. Yeah. So I had actually one of my, my college roommates visited a couple of years back and she walked in and she's like, wow, you got a lot of bling. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of color in my office. It's beautiful. It's and, fun. And a lot of very um, personal things on the wall. I, maybe this is a reaction to having spent so many years in accounting and consulting where all we had were cubicles. Mm. And so I've been just waiting for the moment to to decorate. But um, I, one of the things that really inspires me and helps me remember why I do this job and, and when we have to make sacrifices or when it gets tough to, to help remind me to keep going is, is I, I've gotten so many wonderful thank you notes from students over the years. So I finally, rather than keeping them in a drawer, put a bulletin board up and just started sticking them up there. And it's kind of a mess now because it's overflowing. Um, but there's some oh, really good ones, yeah. and they're they're nice to go back and read. It's even nicer when students come back and visit, or they they call me and and want to tell me about their most recent success, or they want to call me and talk over some you know ethics problem that they're having at work and and want my advice. And it's wonderful. I, I say when they graduate, I'm your professor for life. Yeah. Don't don't ever hesitate to to reach out to me and. And it's really nice when they do. It sounds very rewarding. It's Oh, it's yeah. the best. It's absolutely the best. So when you're not at work, uh, I know that you love to volunteer in mm -hmm. the Lexington community for organizations such as Habitat for Humanity and Grace Episcopal Church. You also devote a lot of time to a nonprofit called Hoofbeats. Mm -hmm. And while everybody is probably familiar with Habitat or church volunteerism, they may not have heard of therapeutic riding before. Would you share with us what type of organization Hoofbeats is and why it's so important to you? Sure, sure. So Hoofbeats Therapeutic Riding, that I hope we'll also put a little blurb in, in the, in the footnotes to yep, the, we'll, to the yep, podcast. We'll put, we'll put a link into the website. This, this really sweet, small organization that's been in Rockridge County, gosh, since like 1993, I mean, longtime member of the, the community. And um, the, the goal is to help people with physical or mental or emotional challenges to feel safe and whole again. And it is amazing how a relationship with a horse 
or really any animal, but mm-hmm. especially a horse can can help people do that. And so the kinds of, of transformations that I've seen for people that, that come to Hoofbeats, and, and I, I help them with everything from the horse care to helping with the lessons to I even do their books. <laughs> I, I do Full all service. their accounting work too, right? Uh, volunteer of the year for life, right? That, but, I, you know, thinking about um, one little girl who was coming who, who was um, – physically disabled and and bound in a wheelchair but could do um, therapeutic riding and with the right equipment with the right saddle and how the motion of riding a horse helped to build her trunk strength and also helped to rebuild neural pathways in her brain how the the locomotion of a horse for someone who can no longer walk is reminding the body of what that movement is like and is just absolutely transformational to their their physical progress. The, the emotional progress that people make as well, um, uh, horses, unlike dogs and cats, are especially sensitive creatures. And they do not tolerate outbursts and they do not tolerate anger. And they are very large and can can you know <laughs> put you in a bad spot. So you know you really you really do have to be on your best behavior around an animal like like a horse. And so you know kids that have had a hard time with that, whether they're being referred to us from social services or they've you know had a lot of um, turnover and turmoil in their home lives to where. Um, they haven't felt seen, they haven't felt understood, and they haven't been in a situation where being quiet and calm and gentle is not just necessary, but is rewarded, where the animal then wants to come to you and spend time with you and is is better with you because of how you've behaved. Um, that too is a, a really transformational experience for for our our, uh, our participants. So it's it's the kind of program, I mean, I, I'm somebody who grew up with horses. Um, I've ridden horses my whole life, has, have occasionally owned some horses. Um, you know, I, I've always loved horses for myself, but the thing about hoofbeats that has really helped me be a better person is seeing how working with horses can help other people as well. So it's, it's not about me anymore, but... Um, what what a great place! And, yeah, yeah, and it a, is a great place, and and a great service to the people in our, our community. Yeah. So, Drew, your husband now is the Haight Associate Professor of Business Administration in the Williams School, and also a member of the WNL's class of '97. What is it like teaching at the same school as your spouse? Well, there there are some funny things that come up. Um, most notably confusion over which Professor Huss someone oh. is talking about at any given moment. <laughs> and I love what the students have come up with to um, work around this this difficulty. So amongst the students, I am known as Mrs. Professor Huss, and he's known <laughs> as Mr. Professor Huss, which I, I just think is really sweet and is so perfect about, you know, thinking about how just polite, oh, so incredibly polite our students oh. are. And so Mrs. Professor has. So have, um, have you alerted yeah. the uh, registrar's office to that? So no. they can put it in the course selection <laughs> yeah. book. <laughs> but, you know, for the, for the most part, um, we're not on the same committees together. Um, our spheres of students actually overlap a lot less than you might think. Um, so, you know, in any given year, there's maybe two or three students that have 
been in both our classes and that's about it. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it means we have the same work schedule and that's really nice, particularly when you're planning family vacations and so forth. And so you and Drew met in college, right? Okay. Yes. Do you want the origin story? I do. I do. And it's so timely because we met over Fancy Dress Weekend. Oh, and that's coming up. Coming up up here at at WNL. And and for those of you that don't know the Fancy Dress tradition, it's essentially a prom for college kids. And back when Washington and Lee was all male, this was the big opportunity for, for women to come to campus and stay to campus for a full extended weekend of festivities and so forth. And it's it's a, a long weekend, let's say. So you've got the usual Wednesday night parties. There's the Thursday big concert where they bring in somebody, um, you know, somewhat modern mm-hmm. and relevant. And then the actual dance is on, I guess, Friday or Saturday night. And then there's, of course, after parties for all of that. And it just so happened... Um, Sophomore year of college, both Drew and I were not dating anybody and had been set up with our fancy dress dates and perhaps not having the best experience, <laughs> right? It's, it's really hard to, to be set up and basically be on a blind date for a weekend. For a that's weekend, that long, yeah, that's right? a long that, time. That much togetherness, yeah. that many events. And so by the time that the after party rolled around, we had both ditched our dates and met at his fraternity where they were hosting the usual after party. And it had just, you know, kind of devolved at that point where, you know, anybody was going, people with dates, without dates. And um, so I, I did what is normally done when we when we go to such after parties. This was at the Kappa Sigma house in the basement. And I went up to the bar to get a beer. And, you know, here was this guy. He wasn't just working the bar. He was actually sitting on the bar to, to do the <laughs> sitting, serving. Sitting on the bar, handing out Sitting beer. on the bar, <laughs> handing out beers. You know, something really fancy like um, Milwaukee's Best. We used to call it yeah. the Beast. And I, I struck up a conversation with him. And he was so um, sweet and cute and, and a little bit of aloof, you know, especially sort of sitting up there. And it was... Anyway, so sparks flew then, and um, I went out on the dance floor with my girlfriends, and and we were, you know, having a good time. And and sure enough, he, I guess the feeling was mutual because he sent a pledge out with another beer to deliver to me. I mean, talk about romantic yeah, gestures. Yeah, the the the, yes. pa- the power of <laughs> of not only working the beer, but the power of having pledges to do some yes. of your legwork for you. And I mean, I would love to say the rest was history. Um, no, it, I mean, it took a while for us to to actually get serious. But we we dated on and off from from March of 1994 until today. The pledge that brought the beer is still a dear friend, Jamie Estes. We ran into him in Charlottesville years later. He's married with kids. We're married with kids. Oh, my gosh. Um, but, yes, yeah, so we we met at Fancy Dress, and I was romanced over Milwaukee's Best. Oh, that is how the best marriages are made, I think. <laughs> um, they, they, there's a term for couples who meet at WNL, yeah. date at WNL, and then get married. Alummates. Alummates. And we get the cutest postcard every Valentine's Day. Yes. I love that. Uh-huh. I love that. I'd like I'd be interested to know how many alummates there are. Yeah. Do you know? I, I don't know. Okay. Um I I I know of a few couples that have actually married after they didn't date while undergrads and maybe didn't even overlap. 
but then met through the WNL Alumni Network right. and found a kindred spirit. Yeah. And that doesn't surprise me a bit because the the culture of this place really does imprint on you and I think changes you in a way where um, you're always seeking that same quality yeah. in the people you spend time with. And you take it for granted when you're here and you have such open relationships and so much trust and and so much respect and intellectual curiosity and all those wonderful values that we celebrate here. And then you get out in the real world and you find out just how rare they are. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so that doesn't surprise me that there are many alum mates, but I don't yeah. know how many actually. You know what? We'll, yeah. we'll include that number in our episode we'll find notes yeah. uh, for, the, for the episode. Fun fact. That'll be fun. Yeah. So you and Drew now have two children who are teenagers. Yes. And you have stated that it can't be easy to have two professors as uh, parents. I love what you said, though, once about it being more important that your children are happy and thriving than following in your educational and professional footsteps. How do you and Drew encourage them to follow their own paths when your own lives are immersed in academia? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's important with our children, with the the students we work with, to tackle the elephant in the room head on. And so for the kids, the elephant in the room is, oh, well, you have to go to college or you you have to get a graduate degree and you have to be an academic because that was the, the path that you're parents took. I actually have a brother who's a PhD as well. So there's there's lots of academics in, in the family. Um, and and just remind them from the beginning that no, you don't have to do that. And and I have those conversations with students here as well, where they, you know, their upperclassmen that they've interacted with went investment banking and they're hearing a lot of students get investment banking jobs. And so they feel like they have to do that too just to remind them that no, you can choose other careers. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that. If it is that and you love that, great, but don't feel like you are gonna box yourself in before you've even tried something. Looking back at your time as a WNL student in the mid 90s, how does Lexington of today compare to back then? Well, I get asked this a lot and, and this place is amazing. It's sort of like nothing changes and then everything gets better. <laughs> so so for students from the 90s, you know, we, our favorite places to hang out um, were the Palms and Spankies. And then our, you know, our, our go-to spots would have been like Goshen and Panther Falls and Windfall and Zolman's Pavilion and, and so forth. And all those places still exist. And for the most part, students still go to them. Even Zolman's? Well, so Zolman's Pavilion now, I think, is only for private parties. And okay. I don't know that that college students are going there. So that's kind of okay. the one The one, the one exception. question mark. The one question mark. Although I, I have been to a, a, a wedding rehearsal dinner there in recent memory. So they must be doing oh, something in space. But, um, you know, uh, so Spanky's is now McAdoo's. But... Well, pretty much the same menu. Anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, exactly. It was, it was bulldozed in yeah, the parking lot. Yeah, but um, but we've also got so so many more new things here that I think make the the place even more appealing. So we've got a, a whole lot nicer hotel options, mm-hmm. some of which have been written up as like best in America hotels <laughs> now. So there's a little bit more quality mm-hmm. when it comes to those kinds of accommodations. 
And um, I, I would say that the the restaurant scene is pretty thriving for such yeah. a small place. I think a lot of people have have relocated here and uh, taken advantage of the low rent to to try some new things. Um, and and one of the things that I didn't do nearly enough of when I was an undergrad, which was to take advantage of the outdoors or to yeah. participate in outing club activities. And in addition to being very close to the Appalachian Trail, which is um, very popular now and and was back in the 90s we have a, a lot more uh trails and and hiking uh, venues and even a new edition of the outing club hiking mm-hmm. uh, textbook which one of my students helped help to rewrite and uh and even here just you know right in town the um back campus of, of washington oh, yeah. has a whole bunch of new trails that are Fantastic. That was a savior during the pandemic. It yeah, Yeah, so has been. So what a wonderful place that that you can live well and eat well and have oh and and lime kiln. I can't go without forgetting lime kiln. Oh my gosh, the lime kiln concert series is is fantastic. And and so you can even have great music and you can live in the great outdoors. It's it's really a wonderful place to be. That it is. I'm gonna wrap up with one final question. You're a WNL alumna and also a WNL professor, so it gives you a very unique perspective. What do you know now that you wish you had known when you were a student? Hmm. I well, I wish I'd done more outing club. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I had taken advantage of study abroad activities. Mm. Um, I didn't because I I loved being here so yeah. much and didn't want to Tough miss decision. a minute of it. Yeah. And um and I do think that that being able to to live and study abroad when you're young before you get tied down with marriages and children and jobs is yeah. is such a gift and I wish I'd taken advantage of it. Um and I I guess also to to perhaps think about um your your time here at Washington and Lee and and just making the most of it and whether that's being more mindful about who you spend your time with or what classes you take and and trying not to um, not to fall back on default options and and being perhaps a little more courageous and a little a little more creative and and really taking advantage of the the full experience. I, I'm not going to say that I I didn't get the most out of it, but gosh, if I could go back and yeah take a few more art history classes or be brave enough to be in a, a theater production or um, I don't know. I never took a history class and, yeah. and I should have. So, so yes, those are the small regrets yeah. that, that I have. Well, hopefully students will listen to that and take note. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. To all of you who have turned in, Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Megan's work, please visit the show notes on our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong. You'll also find more information about our other WNL Lifelong Learning programs, including programs where you can join us on campus, abroad, and in your very own home. Until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future. <laughs>